You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where my lack of knowledge about sad songs really hinders my choice for the opening music. Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite Green Lanterns who are both going through a lot of changes. Kyle on the first in the fact that he has lost the love of his life. Last episode, which I was graced to have the presence of Miss Sally Pascal come on and help me with the episode, we covered Green Lantern number 54, where Major Force brutally killed Kyle's girlfriend, Alex. This episode, we're seeing what comes from that. We're actually getting some resolution with what that whole green rock thing was that appeared with Kyle in the alley. And we're also getting Kyle getting very introspective on what he should do as a hero. It's a starting point in this new Green Lantern's life that's basically going to guide him throughout the rest of the series. But over in the Guy Gardner book, we get about as 180 from the sort of introspective moral dilemma thing that Kyle was going through with Guy, Steel, Supergirl, and oddly enough, a non-paralyzed Batgirl being dragged through various areas of time and various dimensions and dealing with the events that are leading up to that wonderful crossover Zero Hour. Yes, Zero Hour, Crisis in Time, the DC crossover that fixed all the problems that eventually came spiraling out of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And by the way, fixing them, I mean not at all. Yes, Zero Hour was a great concept, unfortunately it led to more problems than it actually set out to create. But, still a fun tale, and as you know, I'm all about the fun. So, we're going to go ahead and put some promos here, and once we get back, we'll get to our coverage of Green Lantern. I sense a disturbance in the Force. You always sense a disturbance in the force. You're doomed. 
like this. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. The randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me. Listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20 Minute Long Box. The 20 Minute Long Box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com. The show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. And we are back. But before we get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 55, let's go check the Just One of the Guys email bag and see who decided to be a wonderful listener and write in this time. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and this time out, we've got an email from the indomitable Professor Allen co-host of the Book Guys podcast, an all-around wonderful person, and fan of Dr. Doom. Which makes him a wonderful person in his own right. Uh, He's writing in, and to be honest, this is kind of a follow-up for an email that I'm saving for a subsequent episode. So uh, he writes in saying, Sean, like I said before, my local comic shop does quarterman sales every three or four months. Anyway, I just dropped a cool $1.75 to pick up Warrior number 23, 24, 26, 27, 28, 30, and 31. So I have the next few months of your podcast covered. Don't disappoint me now. Ugh. It's a very Doom-like proposal at the end. Uh, I promise you, Professor, if you're reading those comics, especially 23 and 24, you will not be disappointed. That's the uh, Bo Smith run that I covered the past couple of weeks, and it is is awesome. Bar none. But uh, the professor had some specific questions for issue 25, and I'll be getting to that in a couple of weeks. I'd also recommend, Professor, if you can find it, I don't know how prevalent the zero hours are, or the zero hour books are, but go look for the uh, zero hour issues of Green Lantern and uh, Guy Gardner Warrior. I'll be covering those next week with a uh, another certain special guest. In fact, special guest who's been on the show a couple of times, and I might actually be stealing Michael Bailey's phrase of having him as his semi-regular co-host. He might actually become my semi-regular co-host. Sorry, Michael, not trying to take him away from you, I promise here. But uh, that's the end of the email bag. Uh, Thank you, Professor Allen, for writing in. Again, if you guys want to write in at the end of the show, I'll give the uh, email address, or I can give it to you right now. It's just one of the guys' podcast at gmail.com. 
feel free to write in with any comments, dirty jokes, arguments, hate mail, whatever. I even get spam mail every once in a while, and that's that's always fun to find out that some spam bot wants to enlarge a body organ of mine. There you go. But with that awkwardness out of the way, let's go ahead and get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 55. Green Lantern number 55 was cover dated September 1994, with a release date on or about July 19th of 1994. The cover price was $1.50 US, $2.10 Canada, ooh, a whopping 10 cents extra, sorry Canada, and 70 pence UK. Title this time around was Assault and Battery. It's a pun. Writer was Ron Mars, pencilers were Craig Hamilton, Derek Akewen, and Daryl Banks. Inkers were Romeo Tangal and Craig Hamilton. Colorist was Steve Matson. Letterer was Albert Guzman. Assistant editor was Eddie Braganza, and editor was Kevin Dooley. Demanding he hand over the ring, Major Force pounds the last Green Lantern into the ground. Kyle defies the magenta marauder, claiming that he'll make him pay for what he did to Alex. Force laughs it off, knowing that with no ring power, he will make easy work of the defenseless youth. Pummeling Kyle with blow after blow, Force finally gets Kyle to the ground and prepares to take the ring for himself. But Kyle isn't out yet as he leaps up and gouges his fingers into the villain's eyes. Enraged, Force blasts Kyle with his... Force powers, I guess, knocking the hero out. But before he can deliver the final blow, Force asks Kyle what the heck is up with this glowy green piece of metal. Kyle says he has no idea, and suddenly object changes shape into the form of a lantern, which recharges Kyle's ring, allowing to put a beat down on the baddie. Kyle traps Force in a ring construct electric chair and demands he tell him everything, but Force says he'd sooner get blood from a stone. Kyle prepares to make an attempt at that when he's surrounded by the Los Angeles SCU, who order him to let Force go. Reluctantly, Kyle frees Force, then takes off after it's obvious that the SCU is unwilling to believe that Major Force is responsible for the murder of his girlfriend. Devastated, Kyle heads to his apartment and flings his mask aside, tears streaming from his eyes. Wondering what he's supposed to do without Alex, Kyle is shocked then to see Alan Scott, the original Green Lantern, standing in his living room. Threats are tossed back and forth, and once Kyle realizes that Alan isn't out to finish the job of Major Force, the two sit down for a chat. Alan tells Kyle the legacy of the Green Lantern Corps, as well as the legacy of one of their finest, Hal Jordan. But with the destruction of Coast City, Hal went mad trying to rebuild it and bring back all who lived there, a task that the Guardians of the Universe forbade him to do. Hal rebelled and destroyed the Guardians, and defeated Guy Gardner's attack force with ease. Alan says eventually Hal will have to be stopped, and Kyle will need to be a part of the heroes that stop him. Not certain that he wants the responsibility, Kyle tells Alan that he needs to think about this, and Alan departs with the warning that time is growing short. We then cut to Kyle, sitting on his rooftop contemplating all that's happened. He ponders giving it all up and just going back to how it was. But he realizes that Alex wouldn't want that. She would want him to take on the responsibility, to become the hero that she knew he could be. Putting the mask back on, Kyle takes off, vowing not to let Alex down. And not moments later, Kyle gets the chance to keep that promise as he is approached by Superman and Metron, who are seeking the Green Lantern's help. 
Here in this book, we get kind of the loose ends that have been keeping Kyle from becoming a true Green Lantern, tied up in a sort of neat bundle. The introduction of the Lantern is here. We get Kyle learning the backstory of the Corps, the rise and fall of Hal Jordan. It's, it's all here, along with a dramatic conclusion which leads Kyle to decide on his ultimate fate. In looking at the books as a whole, it is truly awful what happened to Alex in the last issue. And I agree with Gail Simone, it is kind of representative of how women are treated in comics. They're sometimes left as throwaway characters. However, in this case, there was an impetus to do it, and it did lead to Kyle becoming a more dedicated Green Lantern. It was a building point in his characterization, and without it, I don't think there would have been any reason for Kyle to actually be doing what he's doing and to become the character that I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast really love. Character I love as well. But let's go ahead and go on to the notes, starting off with the cover, which is a really nice cover of uh, by Banks and Tangall of Alan and Kyle. Uh, really don't have all that much to say about it. Uh, it looks, however, like it might be happening in Alex's apartment, because things are sort of tossed around and, you know, broken and such, which is off. I mean, they've had other covers recently where Alex, or not Alex, Kyle was fighting Mongol rather than on the beach, but in a city, you know, but it's a good-looking cover. Uh, Banks and Tangal get the characters down right, and much like a lot of people with capes in the 90s, Alan's cape is big and out there. It's it's the spawn effect, I think. Page one. I discussed this with Sally in the last episode, and if Kyle lost power to his ring and Last episode, we saw that he used the ring to put his uniform after his super happy fun time with Alex, and I can't believe I just used air quotes there. Then why are we not seeing Kyle either in his BBDs or whatever he was wearing, or the fact that he's au natural? I mean, it's just a little nitpicky thing that kind of bugs me. Is the uniform a construct, or is the uniform clothing that he actually puts on? Because the way it was in the past issue, it was a construct that he beamed on. And actually, the way we'll see in an issue later, it's also a construct. So when he takes the ring off, you know, it goes away. Maybe it's just the thing about him taking the ring off. Yeah, If he has the ring on, he can still have the uh, costume on, even if... You know, he doesn't have any power to it. Maybe that's their excuse. It's a good no prize anyway. Page 4, panel 2. I like the fact that Kyle isn't willing to give up, and he's even willing to fight a little bit dirty as he gouges Major Force's eyes out. I mean, he puts his thumbs in his eyes. That's uh, that's going to hurt even if you are sort of a, well, maybe not indefeatable super villain, but, you know, that you've got this sort of regenerative power. It's, it's a dirty way to fight. I give it to Kyle for doing that. Page 5. Oh, hey, by the way, you know, I've got this weird glowy piece of metal that's green, and it was found by where you got the ring. Uh, I have no idea what it would be, Mr. Green Lantern. I know you don't have a lantern yet, but I've got this thing that's metal, and it's glowy, and it's radiating energy. 
Any idea what it could be? <sighs> Doofus. Then on page six, oh, oh yeah, it's your lantern. I, I should have known. I mean, with the whole green lantern thing in your name and this being found by where you got the ring, you, I should have expected that. <laughs> My bad. Page eight, pen one. We get a image of Kyle reconstructing up the electric chair and putting major force in it, and all the electricity or energy shooting off of it. It definitely gives a whole new meaning to the term the green mile. <laughs> Get it? The green mile? Okay, I'll shut up now. Page 9, panel 5. Again, like I mentioned last issue, would or could have Kyle actually killed Major Force if the SCU didn't intervene? Obviously, Kyle has got different limitations with his ring. It's not affected by yellow, the charges in 24 hours, so you've got to imagine things might be a little different. So, I'm wondering if there was no intervention by the SCU or the Special Crimes Unit, to be specific, if Kyle would have actually killed Major Force here. If he would have, it would have made a much shorter book, but there you go. Page 12, we get some really nice art and some really heartbreaking panels as Kyle flies into the uh, roof of his apartment, I guess. We haven't seen his apartment in the book, but I'm assuming that this is what it is, and he flies in and lands on the roof and takes the mask off and flings it away and opens up the skylight of his apartment and his hand is on his face and he's just got the lantern in his other hand and the final panel is all just done in silhouette which again is a great look for him. The black with just the white accents of his chest up there. Plus you also see his teeth and his eyes being white <clears throat> not really whited out, but just white, and you can see tears streaking down from his eyes. It's it's a great image, and it's really good art by the artist team. I don't think this is Banks here. It looks a little different than Banks' stuff, but it might be one of the other artists. Well, it's obviously one of the other artists, but it's really good stuff, and it's all done without any narration or without any speaking uh, parts. Really good page. Page 13, panel 3, after Alan Scott introduces himself and says, My name is Alan Scott, and I am... I kind of expect the uh, next words out of his mouth to be, The son of Dracula, and I'm here to drink your blood. Especially the fact that he's there in the middle, or in the dark, in Kyle's apartment. And the fact that his cape is just really very Dracula-like. Kind of creepy. I'd be freaked out if someone appeared in my apartment like this. Page 15, panel 1. I know this is common to distinguish Alan Scott's Green Lantern constructs from the regular Green Lanterns, but I like how Alan Scott's constructs have this, rather than energy bubbling off of it, it looks like it's fire bubbling off the uh, constructs. And it really looks good. It's a nice way to distinguish it, but it's a really cool way as well. Pages 17 through 20, here's basically Alan Scott giving the whole backstory to Kyle about the Green Lantern Corps and everything, and it's a nice couple of pages that show well, a lot of the Lantern Corps, uh, a lot of what Hal did, especially with uh, Ollie, his, his Green Arrow, Green Lantern, hard-traveling hero stuff. Uh, we've got Star Sapphire and Aventur. We've got Tom Kalamaku. And we've got Sinestro, obviously, so really good couple of panels. And again, I can't tell if this is Banks doing the artwork here. 
might be, it's a little bit more scratchy than, than what I'm used to for banks. Then on page 19, we get a little something for Sally Pascal, and maybe in some of the ladies who might be reading this book. Uh, we get a shot of shirtless, or, well, near shirtless Hal, and he's beaten up, but very, I guess, manly looking and very hairy chested, and he's doing the sort of, well, what nowadays would be considered the Ed Benet's boobs and butts at the same time pose. He's being shot from the backside, so you've got a nice picture of his butt, but he's twisting his body in such a manner that, you know, he's got his chest sort of facing towards you as well. If this were, say, Catwoman, I'm certain there would be people calling this really sexist, but I just wanted to point this out in case Sally decides to listen to this podcast. This is probably an image that she'd like to put on her site. And then finally, on page 20, I know we've gone over this about Aresia's costume looking ridiculous, and it's drawn here by whatever artist is doing this page, and I don't know how, but they made it even more unfeasibly wrong. I mean, in the Bo Smith book, with uh, Mitch Bird drawing it, it looked like uh, it might have covered certain portions of her body. In this one, the, I guess, the bikini briefs, or whatever they're supposed to be, don't end at, like, her hips. They end at her waist. So her entire butt is covered up. And that little uh, strap of fabric covering off her, I guess, her supposed naughty bits, is even more thin. Uh, Basically, any type of movement and you're going to be intimately knowledgeable with Aresia's reproductive organs. Page 1, or sorry, page 21, panel 5, as Alan disappears in a sort of green puff of flame, he tells Kyle that he can't afford to dally. Really? I, I know Alan's from a different time, but does anyone even use that anymore? I guess it places Alan as a character of the 1940s, but to use the word dally in a then-modern context just seems really out of place. Page 22, we get Kyle finally coming to the realization that he has to take responsibility for his actions and has to take on the mantle for being Green Lantern. And the caption boxes here just perfectly capture what I think of Kyle as being the Green Lantern. And it goes like this. It says, Times like this were when I came to you, Alex. You were always so much better at seeing things from all angles, thinking them through. I thought this hero thing was the way for me to be somebody, for us to be together. It stopped being fun and games, but I need you here to tell me what to do, because I don't know if there's any way I can handle this by myself. Everything that guy Alan Scott told me, this this is bigger than I could have imagined. It'd be so much easier to run away from it all, go back to being who I was. But you wouldn't let me do that, would you? You'd tell me I had responsibilities. To myself, to the ring, to the world, to you. You'd kick me in the butt and tell me to get moving. You're the best thing I ever had, Alex. I loved you, and I won't let you down. As Kyle flies off and... Essentially, it's the whole Uncle Ben telling Peter... Um, 
with great power comes great responsibility thing. And it's changed in a bit of ways. And yes, there are some parallels between Spider-Man and Kyle Rayner, but the sentiment is still there. He was given this great responsibility, this great power, and he needs not to just let it go away, not to throw it away, because someone needs to be out there to do this. And the fact that he's come from this sort of brash, cocky, self-centered guy to within just five issues, a person who is willing to accept this responsibility is one of the reasons, again, he's one of my favorite Green Lantern characters. Then finally, on page 23, I'm really glad that the hero who worked the closest with Kyle and is the one who really knows him the most and trusts him is the one who recruits him for this really dangerous mission. And the fact that that person is Superman is also really sweet as well. The fact that Superman is vouching for you and has this kind of faith for you really is a sign that this is a character that's going to make it in the DC Universe. But that finishes up my notes for this issue. I'm going to go ahead and take a break and go get a little drink. And when I come back after these promos, we'll get to our coverage of Guy Gardner number 24. In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, was not spared of the ravages of the Great Depression. In a time of fear and confusion, a character emerged that would entertain and inspire millions of children and adults alike. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic book adventures thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. In the 70s, the world believed a man could fly. In the 80s, he was reborn in the comics, and the 90s saw his death, rebirth, and marriage. In the 21st century, he returned to the big screen and saw his origin changed and retold on several occasions. Through the decades, he has gone by many names. The Man of Tomorrow, the last son of Krypton, the Man of Steel. His strength is incredible. His name is legendary. His battle is never ending. Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. My name is Michael Bailey, and I host an internet radio show called Views from the Long Box. Superman is my favorite character of all time, and in 2013, he is turning 75. Because of this, a large portion of the episodes this year will be about the Man of Steel, in a series I'm calling Superman, Superman at 75, the celebration, celebration of a legend. I'm going to mark Superman's birthday in fine style by examining all aspects of the character's history, 
From the comics, to the movies, to the television series, and beyond, both alone and with the best and brightest of the podcasting world. It may not be every episode, but the bulk of views in 2013 will be all about the Man of Steel. He is the first and greatest superhero of them all, and he deserves no less. Superman Superman at 75. 75. The celebration of a legend. A series within a series, and the biggest birthday card a fan can give his favorite hero, only at Views from the Long Box. Views from the Long Box is a Fortress of Bailey-Tude production. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and for this series, over at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. said Mongo, didn't he? That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.lipson.com And we're back. And what you heard there was a promo for the excellent podcast Flash Legacies, hosted by Dave Walker. If you want to hear more of Dave Walker or more of Andy Leyland, Hope Mullinax, Chris Tyler, the hair metal hero, or myself, head on over to the Two True Freaks website. Over the uh, coming year, we're going to be doing a special on, uh, well, one of the best things to come out of Britain that isn't Andrew Leyland. Or Dave Walker. Yes, we're talking about the indomitable character of sci-fi Doctor Who. So far, we've covered City of Death, and recently we covered... The fourth season opener, Partners in Crime, which reintroduced us to the character of Donna Noble. Doctor Who is one of my favorite shows from when I was a kid, and I'm glad that I'm able to get together with this fantastic group of podcasters and talk about this character. Uh, Look for it over at Two True Freaks if you want to hear me doing something other than Green Lantern. But why would you? Because the show is awesome, specifically for this next issue of Guy Gardner which, amazingly enough, is Guy Gardner Warrior number 24, which had a cover date of September 1994, with a release date of August 2nd, 1994. The cover price was a I'm sorry, $1.50 US, $2.10 Canada, and 70 pence UK. The title was Killing Time. The writer was Bo Big Zero Smith. Pencilers were the superheroes or the Super Zero Squad, Mitch Bird, Phil Jimenez, Howard Porter, and Mike Parapak. Woohoo! Layouts were Jackson Sub-Zero Geis, Inker and Finisher was Dan Minus-Zero Davis, Letterer was Albert Ground-Zero de Guzman, 
Colorist was Stuart Double Zero Shaffitz, and editor was Eddie Above Zero Bracanza. See what they're doing there? The, the whole zero thing? It's called a tie-in, kids. For some reason, probably to suit what's going on in Zero Hour, guys ditched Buck Morgo and his crew in, in the jungles of South America for Supergirl, Steel, and Batgirl. No, not Oracle. Batgirl. Walking and talking. He's also changed location to Coast City, where the heroes are suddenly sucked into a time vortex, and sucked into the Jurassic period, where they encounter a stampede of Brachiosauruses. The crew dodges their way through the rampaging herd, with Steel and Guy making quips about football, until Supergirl spies the reason for the stampede. It seems Extant, a supervillain with time displacement powers, has brought the heroes to this time to end their lives. However, before he can, Anthro, a prehistoric DC character lost to the crisis, appears and vows to drive Exton out. He gets a little help from Steel, who flying tackles the villain, only to have him phase from existence. The heroes decide to try to get back to New York to warn the others, but they're once again blasted through time by Exton. This time, Guy's group lands in the Old West, or what's left of it, as large portions of the landscape are disappearing into a white light of nothingness. Guy decides to recreate High Noon and morphs giant guns out of his hands. <sighs> Guy blasts at the black and red baddie only to have him displace the shots, possibly sending them through time, ending up as the gunfire from the grassy knoll. Guy yells for the group to take Extant down, and they're joined by the heroes of the Old West to do just that. The rough punch distracts Extant long enough for him to be blasted by... Extant? Uh, but, but the real Extant isn't phased, and he returns fire at, oh, it's the shape-shifted Supergirl, and then pulls the heroes back into another timeline. Here there are a few str- strange futuristic aliens fighting each other, with a displaced Lady Blackhawk right in the middle of the brawl. Guy punches the freaks out and rescues Lady Blackhawk, only to have her, Steel, and himself transported into a Silver Age coast city where Guy witnesses himself being prepared to pop the question to then-girlfriend Carrie Limbo. But having two guys in the same place in the same timeline causes Warrior Guy to lose control and start punching the f*** out of anything in his path. Luckily, Green Lantern Hal Jordan is patrolling the area, and he stops Guy by putting him in a ring construct bubble. But the timeline shifts again, pulling Lady Blackhawk and Steel away, and shifting Hal out of existence. Guy is then transported back to Coast City, this time on the day of its destruction. Guy sees Carrie Limbo and realizes that if he can stop this from happening, then everything will be alright. But Exton appears again, stopping Guy from saving Coast City and Carrie Limbo. And in the final panels, we see a horrified Guy witness the destruction of the town he loved as all existence fades into a field of white nothingness.
I've found that usually when you get a gaggle of artists on a book like this, you get a really uneven look to the art, and sometimes just bad art in general. However, here for the most part, it's not the case. Bird, Geis, Jimenez, and Porter, and especially Mike Paraback, provide the art for separate time periods, which actually make the changes in the art seem organic as our heroes are being pulled into different eras of the DC timeline. And boy oh boy, do I miss Mike Paraback. If you don't know what his artwork is like, imagine the uh, DC animated series like uh, Batman, Superman, and the Justice League. His art style is very reminiscent of that art. It's always fun. He's done, uh, in fact, he worked on the Batman, uh, the Animated Adventures, or the Batman Adventures book, and he also uh, drew the Elongated Man series that uh, uh, Mr. Charlie Niemeyer actually got to me for my uh, housewarming gift. So I want to again plug Charlie's podcast, uh, Charlie's Geek Cast, and uh, Bronze Brand in the Bronze Age. And uh, thank you for sending me that because the Mike Paraback art in there was amazing. Loved it. But let's go ahead and get on to the notes of the issue, uh, starting with the cover, which is a very yellow cover. Which is odd because the character who's supposed to be in the background, who's got the black mask, is none other than the baddie for this issue and Zero Hour Extant, who is actually Hank Hall of Hawk and Dove, who decided that the whole monarch thing just wasn't really creepy enough for him, so he had to take the name of Extant, because that's more B.A. Whatever. And again, I also want to give credit to Bird for drawing the superheroines on this cover, uh, actually differently. If you look at the cover, you can see uh, Batgirl and Supergirl on the cover. Supergirl is very fit. Her abdomen is very slender, and it's actually kind of ripped. Batgirl, on the other hand, is a bit more, well, it's a 90s, folks. A bit more top-heavy, but she's also very hippie. She's not as defined as Supergirl, which gives the two characters a distinct look. And it also like uh, Sally Pascal talked about in the last episode, makes them look real, simply because Bird draws them as if they had actual internal organs, not if they are these little skinny, stick-figure type people. They look like real women, and once again, I really like the fact that Bird can not only distinguish the, the women he's drawing, but also can draw them in a manner that doesn't make them look doesn't make them look unreal. Really appreciate that. Page one, this is all just kind of wonky, because if you remember in the last issue, it ended up with Buck, Desmond, Rita, and Joey, and Guy in the Naba jungle looking at this time vortex. And now you've got Guy, Supergirl, Batgirl, and Steel in Coast City looking at this time vortex. So basically all the characters that are part of the book have been pushed to the wayside for now in order that we can focus on this company-wide crossover we need to do. Page two. This is a really trippy panel as Guy and the rest of the heroes are pulled into this swirling sort of psychedelic, I guess, time tunnel. I'm kind of wondering if you synced up Dark Side of the Moon while reading the book at this exact moment, if it would have some sort of alternate meaning. 
I also wonder if those brownies I ate were kind of laced. Need to go eat some more. Page 3, another thing that I really like about Bird, and it was evident in the previous issues of Guy Gardner Warrior, is that Bird does really realistic renditions of dinosaurs. Now, of course, we don't exactly know what dinosaurs look like, but these look really like the ones that we'd see in the previous, well, in the movie that came out recently at the time, Jurassic Park. So he's got that to reference from, but the dinosaur images here look really great. Page 4, panels 2 and 3. Here, Guy makes a football reference that running through the herd of Brachiosauruses is like, um, let's see, it's here. It's like wading through the offensive line of USC. And then the next panel, uh, Steele says, nah, more like the secondary of Michigan University. And I'm kind of wondering if that's a reference to the fact that Steele attended Michigan University as John Henry Irons with uh, Guy Gardner. And actually, I think in an issue of The Man of Steel, I think in one of the annuals, um, not Superman, The Man of Steel, but I think the Steel annual, uh, it was sort of retcon that Guy and Steel actually either shared a room or were friends up in Michigan. So kind of neat little seeding of that story and kind of nice that Bird picks up on it here. Page 5, panel 4, as they're introduced to Anthro, Extant says in the next panel, well, he says in panel 4 that you're not needed for my future, and so you'll be dust, which, it pains me. It just means that the new 52 is not going to have any Anthro in it. Damn it all. Damn it all the hell. Page 6, panel 3, there's a little shot here that's kind of odd. Anthro's little Neanderthal friend is looking at Guy, and he's got this sort of... Well, he's got the stereotypical question mark above his head, and he's scratching his head, a lot of the sort of simian-type thing going on. I'm wondering if he's just wondering why Guy is in that goofy armor, or whether or not he recognizes Guy being the uh, living warrior, as we'll be referencing here in about an issue or so. Page 8, panel 4, we get the caption Bob saying, First time I did this, I didn't know I could. Now let's see what happens when I put my mind to it. And I'm wondering if this is... Well, let me set the scene. It's Guy morphing his hands into the big guns that will become a sticking point for the character and a part of the 90s, Jake. But I'm wondering if this is a subtle jab by Bo Smith to the other writers who were doing Guy at the time who, rather than making Guy a sort of, well, like I've said before, like a Terminator 1000, and being able to construct uh, bladed weapons and smashing weapons with his morphing powers, to give him big guns. And maybe this is a jab at them for them doing this first before he did it. So, you never know. Page 10. Now, back when I originally read this, back in the 90s when it came out, I had absolutely no idea who most of these Western characters were. But, again, thanks to the awesome All-Star Western, the really the only book that I'm reading in the New 52, I've got an idea of who most of them are. I mean, we've got Nikehawk and Cinnamon, we've got El Diablo, it looks like Batlash, Tomahawk, uh, there's one other guy that I can't tell, but... Unfortunately, there's no Jonah Hex here, so 
boo for that, you know. I'd like to see Joan at least, but maybe that means that he didn't get wiped from the time stream. So there was a good thing. Page 11. I have absolutely no idea why they thought it was a good idea for a Supergirl, who at the time was this protoplasmic entity and not the stereotypical Kryptonian. She was a being from an alternate dimension that Superman had brought back to Earth. I don't know why at this time it was a good idea for Supergirl to morph into Extant in order to attack him. I mean, did they think it would demoralize him or something? Because it really does nothing except make the panels kind of confusing. Why is Extant attacking Extant here? And you don't realize until Extant 2 gets blasted by Extant 1, and you realize it was the Supergirl who morphed into Extant. It doesn't make sense in the panels, either. Pages 13 and 14. I can't tell whether this is uh, Porter or Dell doing the art here. Or not Dell. Porter or Jimenez, because Porter and Dell did the GLA. Uh, But it's a really great two-page splash of just a lot of stuff going on, and some really freaky aliens, and a sort of Buck Rogers, Adam Strange's character flying around with a jetpack on his back. Plus, it's also got Lady Blackhawk in the page, and Lady Blackhawk will pay, play a big part in the uh, ongoing storyline of Guy Gardner Warrior. So look for that character, and it's fun that Bo Smith brought her back as well. Page 16, we get to probably my favorite part of this book, which is the Mike Paraback card, and it is just wonderful. It's, it's peachy. Don't worry, you'll get the reference later on down the line. Page 17, panel 6, is Guy is going all wonky and his morphing abilities are freaking him out. Carrie Limbo looks at what's going on and says, It's a monster, a horrible monster. And she thinks to herself, Why didn't I foresee this? And I think she probably didn't foresee this because, Oh, I don't know, all the time you were spending with Guy, your mind was on trying to get Hal Jordan to marry you. (sighs) Carrie Limbo. Moving on to page 21, panel 3. Here's where the art takes a turn for the worst. I don't know who's doing this, but the image here of Guy screaming his stereotypical Darth Vader no as he watches Coast City blow up in a mushroom cloud, whoever did it needs to be slapped because this is a really bad image of Guy. I mean, worse than... Anything I've seen in a long time. And I've read that Howard Jakin collateral damage issue. But like most of the Zero books for the month, the uh, book kind of fades out at the end. You see the borders of the uh, panels sort of dotting out and turning into dotted lines. And then the final two pages are just completely white, signifying that obviously a change in time has happened. And we're going to get to that change of time next issue with the Zero Month issues. But before we get to that, we're going to go ahead and take a look at some of the very 90s ads they've got in this comic. The front inside cover is a kind of weird advertisement. I guess the basketball player is Muggsy Bogues, or Bogus, B-O-G-U-E-S. Uh, and it gives some of his favorite things, like uh, crab cakes... Uh, His favorite book is In the Land of the Giants. His favorite game is Magic 8-Ball. And his favorite jeans, which I guess they're advertising for, are X-Am. Never heard of them, and don't know if I 
really care. Then a few pages in, we get the horrific superhero spoof done by Damon Wayans. Yes, it's Blank Man. If you, uh, some of you may remember the show in Living Color, which Damon and the entirety of his family were on the show, and they did a parody of a person who was, well, mentally handicapped, and he was a superhero, and they called him Handyman. Essentially, this is the same character, but they felt for a larger audience, calling a person handicapped as a superhero probably wasn't the best way to go, so instead they went blank man. The Waynes have done some good stuff. I'm Gonna Get You Sucker is... Or actually, I'm Gonna Get You Sucker is a hilarious movie, but I'm trying to remember if there was anything funny about this movie, and nothing's coming to mind. The next page is an ad for Virtual Bart. It's basically a Bart Simpson game that you can play on the Super NES or the Genesis, where you basically go around as Bart Simpson and do Bart Simpson-y type stuff. The Simpsons were huge at this time, and there are a few Simpsons games out. I don't think I've ever played this one. I think I played more of the sort of side-scroller Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles type Simpson game. Um, it is kind of sad, though. Uh, right now I've got an app from my phone called Tapped Out, which I'm assuming is a lot like Farmville. It's basically a sort of Sim City game where you build Springfield and populate it with characters from The Simpsons. And to say that the graphics on my little iPhone are better than this is not saying much. It's amazing how The Simpsons have survived and the graphics has been improved. A few more pages in, we get an advertisement for big wavelength pins, including one where you can draw a salamander and one that you can draw an eagle feather. They're advertising pins in comic books, so I guess it was a slow advertising month. Next page was the American Entertainment comic ad. They had a lot of $1 and $2 comics. Uh, let's see, some of the hot comics. We've got X-Force. Of course, we've got all the Valiant issues. Uh, Team Youngblood for 2 bucks. Let's see if there's anything else on there. There's Spidey 2099. Magnus number 5 going for 20 bucks. Uh, just trying to see here. Exiles uh, with the hologram cover, which was popular at the time, was $20. And Freaks with the hologram cover was $20 as well. Nothing really outrageous. Uh, I guess Prime with the hologram cover was 30 bucks, but it's Prime, you know. It's got to be good. And speaking of Mike Piraback, the next ad we get is for the world's finest heroes together at last. The Batman Adventures, guest starring Superman. And it's, of course, for the Batman Adventures, written by Kelly Pluckett, with art by Mike Paraback and Rick Burchett. Guest starring Superman. And this is the current day Superman. He's got the longer hair. Uh, I don't know whether they mentioned that he was back from the dead or whatever, but it's the long-haired Superman. And it's got the same animated style as Batman, the animated series. And I actually think this is the first time 
that Superman has ever been drawn. This was a bit before the Superman animated series came out. So I think this is the first time that you saw Superman in the sort of animated DC series style. So it's kind of neat. He looks really good. Again, anything Parabek does is pretty good in my opinion. The next ad says Lost in Time, bouncing from the past and bouncing from the past to the future and battling the return to his own time. The acclaimed miniseries presented again in trade paperback on sale in August. It's Superman time and time again. Mike and Jeffrey over at uh, From Crisis to Crisis covered this a while back. Really good series of stories, and I really enjoyed their coverage of it. Go check out their back issues if you want to learn more about time and time again. The next ad is another house ad. An alien by birth, an earthman by choice, a champion by destiny. William Messinor Loeb's Lieber and Shoots writing Hawkman. So I think this is like the 17th reboot of the Hawkman series. I know Luke loves Hawkman, and it's kind of sad to see all the craziness that's gone through. But Luke, I hope this was an enjoyable run of Hawkman. Email with me if, if you think it is. Then the next page is titled Get Out of the Dark, and it's for the Ray, written by Priest, Porter, and Jones. Uh, pretty simple basically black page with the ray and his sort of yellowish uniform shining out from it and his hands ignited with his energy powers. Uh, decent art, but never was that into the ray, sadly. The back inside cover is obviously playing to the readers of this comic as it is for bigger is better, stridex larger pads. So, treating your acne, rub it with some bigger stridex pads. You pimply comic book reading goons. <sighs> Sadly, that's who I was at the time. And then the back outside cover. Oh, hooray. It's been a long time since we've had sports cards, and this time we get the 1994 playoff cards. I guess it's for the NFL because, yeah, it's for the NFL. It's the Tech Chrome NFL playing cards. Like I've said, I'm not the biggest football fan, and I probably never would have collected these cards, but if you are a fan of them, they're here. But that finishes up the ads, and that only leads me to the final, well, statement that neither of these books have been reprinted. Yep, after Emerald Dawn, or not Emerald Dawn, Emerald Twilight kind of finished up, they weren't going to collect any of the Greenland books. Probably aren't going to collect any for actually quite a while now. And Guy Gardner, still nothing. Which is sad. But what's not sad is Zero Month, which is coming up next month. And it's going to be pretty epic, because we get the first actual meeting between Kyle Rayner and his former mentor, well, not former mentor, the former Green Lantern, Hal Jordan. Plus, Guy Gardner gets his origin story fleshed out a bit more, and we learn the whole thing about his whole alien DNA thing going on. Plus, you get to see him get out of that goofy armor and into some goofy tattoos. It'll get better, folks. I promise. But to celebrate this awesome event of Zero Month, I've got what I'm just going to have to be calling now my semi-regular co-host, Mr. Thomas DJ, coming back for the episode. So, everyone, have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the show. And I will see you next Friday. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too. As long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Blink-182 with the song I Miss You, off their album, well, Blink-182's Greatest Hits. This album could be purchased at Amazon.com, one of the most wonderful shopping sites on the internet. And the best way to get to Amazon.com is to go to twotruefreaks.libson.com and click on the Amazon.com banner at the top of the page. If you click on the Amazon banner at Two True Freaks and buy something from Amazon.com, perhaps the Blink-182 album, the MP3, or just the CD single. If you buy one of those things, a small amount of your purchase will go back to the Two True Freaks website, making sure that podcast episodes like Star Trek, Star Wars, and Comics Bunting Monday will be on the air in perpetuity. Someday I'll learn how to say perpetuity. <laughs>